Washington's Secret War Against Afghanistan by Philip Bonosky. Chapter 1. Antique Land There are several hundred secret passageways, one account puts it, through the mountain range dividing, with the help of the Duran Line, but not separating, Afghanistan from Pakistan. Every fall, through these ancient passageways, which curl upon each other like veins and an old cheese, Tens of thousands of nomads, mainly Pushtun, but including Baluchi, follow the ghosts of their ancestors to the grazing grounds of what is known to us as Pakistan, and the following spring back to what is known to us as Afghanistan. But if you were to ask them who they are, Afghans or Pakistanis, they would look blankly at you, shaking their heads, for to them whose allegiance today as it had been for centuries, is to a tribal leader, neither Afghanistan nor Pakistan is a clear reality. They have no state. They recognize no Duran line. Their state is where the grass grows green. So it was when Marco Polo found them over 700 years ago. The mountains afford pasture for an innumerable quantity of sheep which ramble about in flocks. So it was to Karl Marx in 1857 who said that Afghanistan was a mere poetical term for various tribes and states. Pushing their herds before them, sheep, horses, camels, cattle, they go from pasture to pasture, and on their way they are waylaid by history, which comes to them as a violent and alien intrusion. Out of the mysterious spaces beyond the mountains, strange monsters periodically leap at them, an Alexander of Greece, who admired their horses, a Tamerlan, a Genghis Khan from far-off Mongolia, tormented them for a time and then were gone. They resumed then their timeless caravanserai, during which infants of every variety were dropped from humans, sheep, and camels without stopping the motion of their lives. All they knew of history was that it came to them as an interruption in this back-and-forth shuttling between green and green. In the 19th century, other historic monsters from British India leaped on them. This time their names were Lord Palmerson, Disraeli, Winston Churchill, Lord Curzon, Sir Mortimer Duran. And after these had been shaken off again, they went their way, anxious to get out of the mountains into the pasture before the first snows fell. But these Pushtun shepherds were equal to all of history's surprises, cruelties, and treacheries. They were to know kings and emperors. Traders from far Cathay and near Indies had passed through their valleys along the Silk Route. Hellenic culture had touched them. Buddhism arrived from India, but had fallen to Islam by the 7th century. But good or bad, whatever befell them, these nomadic pastoral peoples understood how to deal with it and then in the end they'd absorb their tormentors as the immemorial movement of time absorbed their own history. Their country was a vast natural fortress, with many narrow defiles, which, as Marco Polo had noted, protected them against, quote, any foreign power entering with hostile intentions. They shook all of the past centuries away like water, except this one, the 20th. This most formidable of all centuries broke open the cocoon of time in which they had been wrapped by silence and spilled the contents of their lives, only half real, still merged with myth, 
into the pitiless glare of Klieg lights and TV cameras and confronted them with their own history as an accusation. They had slumbered too long. They had come into the modern world too late. They would now be fearfully punished for it. These new 20th century marauders demanded their souls as down payment for allowing them entry into what had become the private century of America, trademarked the American century. This ritual of passage into this American-owned century proved to be a harrowing gauntlet to be run on the red-hot coals of social torment toward a destination signaled by the two morbid towers of smoke over Hiroshima and Nagasaki. In the race of various revolutions set loose on the world in our times, the scientific technological revolution descended on Afghanistan before its social revolution arrived. And in the tension set up between them, had those shepherds reached the 20th century within touch of indoor plumbing and Telestar, when they were told that they would most likely not reach the 21st, the herdsmen who pushed their sheep and cattle and camels through the valleys that sometimes narrow to where the animals are threaded through one by one, worked by a time that has not changed in ages, by sunlight and dark, dawn and dusk, snow and ice, grass beginning to grow and grass beginning to die. At night, wrapped in blankets which they drape over their shoulders during the day, they sit, descendants of Sufi poets, beside campfires and tell tales to each other of times gone by. These images of the past have grown old in their heads as they traveled from father to son, each century interweaving its own hopes and fears with the hopes and fears of the previous century, until what has now been produced. Like one of their rugs is an image of their own souls, with the thousand strands of their life woven together into a single pattern. But this weaving had abruptly ended with our times. Fable has given way to hard fact, which has become a strange new fable. Technology replaces those tales at the campfire, for they lie down at night now not to listen to the old tales of their fathers, but to press their ears against their modern radios they had brought with them all the way from Kabul or Herat or Kandahar. In those mountains it seems time has stopped still over our campfires. A herdsman has noted on his way some 1,200 kilometers and 60 days from rest. But we hear the sounds of our century over our transistor radios. It is these sounds which have interrupted their eternal tale so abruptly and put an end to the even flow of the past. The present is noisy and drowns out the whispers of their ancestors. They eavesdrop on their own century, as though they were intruders themselves. They tune in on the world not in those mountains where they are resting, and it is through this chromium box that they have discovered one day that there was no way back to the pastures of Afghanistan again. They are exiled from spring, perhaps forever. Let them unroll their prayer mats, facing east to Allah and to Mecca and Saudi Arabia, where they plan to make a hajj. But meanwhile, there is no going back to spring for them this year. They are no longer Afghans, nor Pakistanis, nor Pushtuns, nor Baluchi, nor anything they recognize. That little metal box informs them that they are now refugees, and the new threats spring out at them from it. Carter, Brzezinski, Reagan, Mohammed Zia-ul-Haq, 
strange generals who have enlisted them in that mysterious war of the past against the future without having asked them which they prefer. Unfree, they are dubbed freedom fighters. Alexander of Greece, at 25, had wept to his presumably Afghan mistress Roxanne that there were no more worlds to conquer, unaware that in this conquest of geography he had merely carried the war to history itself. The freeing or unfreeing of space had become a pretext. It was the motion of this history that his after-warriors wanted to conquer, to freeze into immobility at the point of their conquest of space, stiffening social relationships like the carved figures in a stone freeze just as they form them. Now, the master as eternal idol standing over the slave who, on bended knee, in the quiet stone, offers him his ravaged heart forever. As the herdsmen sleep by campfires at night, beyond them speed Pugiots and Cadillacs to the Khyber Pass and on to Peshawar to, de to deposit their passengers in a warm bath already drawn and waiting for them at the deluxe Khyber Hotel. This night, those men who intermingle sheep and shepherds and their calculating machines will sleep in beds of hashish comfort with American dollars and American bombs cascading their opium dreams. In the prince of the world, they will be hailed as Mujahideen, those fierce holy warriors who, from their havens in Pakistan, will direct the war against the infidel, interrupting their labors only for quick hajj to London and Washington, which has effectually replaced Mecca for them. Those foreigners who tried to breach Afghanistan's historic loneliness, which they had cultivated behind the Duran line, had come as marauders. They came for booty, and getting it left. It was the British alone who stayed. The British were not content, as were Genghis Khan's warriors, to speed their horses through camp, sweep at what riches they could as they went by, and then speed out into oblivion again. The British wanted not only the booty of their present, but of their future. They wanted to grow their slaves, and it was they whom the Afghans could not forget nor forgive. To the British, the Afghans were savages, barbarous. A hundred years later, the American writer Paul Thoreau, setting out to go around the world by train, was astounded to discover in 1975 that there were no trains in Afghanistan because there were no railroads in Afghanistan. For him, Afghanistan is a nuisance. Formerly, it was cheap and barbarous, and people went there to buy lumps of hashish. They would spend weeks in the filthy hotels of Herat and Kabul, staying high. Now Afghanistan is expensive, just as barbarous as before. Even the hippies have begun to find it intolerable. The food smells of cholera. Travel there is always uncomfortable and sometimes dangerous. And the Afghans are lazy idle and violent. The Great Railway Bazaar by, by Paul Thoreau. Amazing as that is, still more amazing than what is known about Afghanistan before December 1979, when Americans at least still had no awareness of the country at all, is what became known subsequently. The trouble with people, Josh Billings had remarked in his day, 
quote, is not that they don't know, but that they know so much that ain't so, end quote. In April 1979, when Zbigniew Brzezinski, then President Carter's national security advisor, though not, not exactly advisor to Cyrus Vance, who was asked by an interviewer from the U.S. News and World Report about why the Carter administration has been afraid to use American military power in crisis areas. The National Security Advisor very reasonably, not yet having seen arcs that were unstable in that area of the world, replied, quote, I feel it, the criticism of cowardice that is, was not well founded. The fact of the matter is that in the crises of the last two years, circumstances clearly mitigated against a direct display of presence of American power. As in the case of Afghanistan, the area was remote from the reach of U.S. power. But that same year, the Afghanistan that had been remote in April had miraculously, mainly through the miracle of television, become near and menacing. The greatest threat to peace since World War II, Carter said, by December. The question arises, therefore, what had happened to chase the hippies out of Afghanistan one year and bring Carter in soon after? Why did Afghanistan become such a swelling wound allegedly poisoning the conscience of the world precisely on the night of December 27, 1979? On that night, a certain Hafsullah Amin, known in the prince of Western world as a hardcore communist, had come to power over the body of Nur Muhammad Taraki, also a hardcore communist, a scant four months before, had himself gone to God as Kipling would put it at an earlier time, before a firing squad. Oddly enough, there were very few in Afghanistan itself to mourn his going. In fact, there had been dancing in the streets of Kabul when his death became known. But surprisingly, there was one man in far-off America who had never been to Afghanistan, who had hated all communists, but now shed a public tear for one, and a hardcore communist at that. He was an unlikely mourner at that beer. But his grief was genuine. His name was Jimmy Carter. Why, as Artemis Ware asked at an earlier occasion, these weeps? Why should the capitalist-minded Carter weep for the communist-minded Amin? This was surprising, indeed as surprising as to be told that a defender of Islam that had been born in that born-again Baptist, surprising too to hear him declare that Amin was the legitimate president of Afghanistan at whose demise the free should stand at respectful attention, though it was Amin who had obviously murdered his, quote, friend and teacher, nor Muhammad Taraki, only months before, the man who had had a hand in the assassination of Adolf Dubbs, the American ambassador to Afghanistan. Taraki's widow, released from prison, had cried bitterly in a letter to President Carter, quote, I am angered and shocked, by the fact that you are trying to protect this criminal and murderer, Amin, this plotter, this apostate, who is not averse to using the most insidious methods, he killed my husband. That same evening of the day when Babrak Karmal gave his first interview to the Western Press in Chilsutun Palace in January 1980, I watched a replay of that interview, in which I had asked a strange question on television at the Kabul Hotel. When Babrak Karmal cried to the men from the BBC, 
You are the face of British imperialism. Three times you got a bloody nose from the Afghans. A cheer broke out, and a small group of hotel workers who had left their tables uncleared and the floors unwashed to come and listen. The fears of real people explain ghosts. The ghosts of British imperialism had been conjured up by Carmel not because he feared the British. The British no longer had their old power. A new power had come to haunt them.